Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy, which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. The healthcare system is hard enough to navigate without having chronic illness diagnoses to boot. Feeling all at sea and looking for direction, advice, and deeper understanding? From a medical specialty glossary to tips on talking to your health insurance providers, download your free copy of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Okay, guys, I want to talk about coaching. I recently connected with an awesome executive and life coach, and her name is Jenna Chieko. A graduate of Dr. Martha Beck's program with a background in psychology and law, she's a former tech general counsel and chief of staff who also worked for the Obama administration. Jenna inspires clients to step into their best lives by helping them access their inner strengths, clear the cobwebs holding them back, and cultivate a dream big growth mindset. She is also a life Sherpa for navigating change. You know who I know who has big dreams and is navigating massive changes now more than ever with coronavirus? We Spoonies. Jenna works virtually, and she's offering 10% off to new clients who enroll and mention code INVISIBLE. Her rates are reasonable, and she's dedicated to help us rise to the top. Go to jennachieco.com, that's G-E-N-A-C-H-I-E-C-O.com for more. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Dr. Karen Hayenberger, who we've been very excited to have on the show. Karen is the founder of Lifebulb, which is a patient leadership organization many of you may know about, and one with which I am an ambassador. And she also lives with invisible illness, which she's going to tell us about. So Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So let's start at the very top of your story. Can you tell us when and how you first realized you were sick and what steps you took to control your health? Yeah, absolutely. So um, um, I grew up in Sweden and was never really that sick. I, I was a very healthy young person. And uh, as a child, apparently, my parents tell me I was always happy and highly energetic mm. and, uh, and very rarely sick. So at the age of 16, um, I had a strange uh, spring and so I was a very active uh, tennis player and, and uh, obviously also uh, was a student at the time. Uh, and during the spring, I had three bouts of tonsillitis. I was at home from school and uh, uh, I was unusually, uh, you know, sick and weak. And um, I also started losing weight uh, mm. in ways that I, I wasn't at all looking for. Um, and, uh, and during the summer, uh, uh, that year, I uh, was playing a very big tennis tournament down in the south of Sweden, and it got really much, much worse. Uh, my uh, uh, my body weight was down at 15 kilos or so, which is almost wow. 30, 30 or well, more than 30 pounds, or, yeah. or almost. Uh, and I was always lean, so I was really, really skinny. Mm -hmm. And I was drinking a lot of water, and I was going to the bathroom, and you know all the real signs of type one diabetes. Uh, but I didn't know uh, about diabetes. My my family, no one was diagnosed with diabetes in my family, neither really type 2 nor type 1. Mm. Um, so um, we didn't recognize it. Or maybe my parents did, but they didn't want to. So uh, after this tournament that I, I really did well in, despite all, all this, I, I, uh, I traveled back to uh, the north of Sweden. Um, we were living in Stockholm at the time. And I went to see my grandparents for a week uh, to rest because I was tired. Uh, within a day, my grandparents realized there was something really wrong with me. And um, mm. they took me to uh, the kind of the local nurse and uh, not even a doctor because this was out in the countryside. And there were a few of these nurse stations. Um, 
And the nurse did a urine test and saw I had a lot of sugar in my urine and asked us to go directly to the big hospital where there were doctors and uh, in a good medical care. Mm -hmm. So my grandfather and grandmother drove me to the hospital. I think actually it was only my grandfather because my grandmother was at, uh, at home taking care of my other two sisters, um, I have two younger sisters who were there with me. Um, and my parents at the time were in Stockholm uh, packing up the house because as a family, we were moving to Paris that, that, wow. uh, that fall. So a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, that's a very uh, big move. <laughs> yeah, it's a big move, changing schools. And um, mm. yeah, anyway, so um, when I got to the hospital, they immediately um, uh, told me that I have type 1 diabetes, that this mm. was, this was uh, my blood sugar was sky high. I had all the symptoms and they needed to admit me uh, because I needed the insulin IV. Um, I needed to be hydrated. I was in um, ketoacidosis and mm. I, was, I was really sick. So I was admitted to the hospital for the first time, the first time ever that I'd been to a hospital except for when I was born. Right. Um, and I, um, uh, I, I, I was terrified. I mean, absolutely yeah. terrified. Um, I didn't know what this meant. I knew one person who had type 1 diabetes and it was, um, it was actually a fellow tennis player. And mm. she was so, very skinny. And I always thought she looked so skinny and looked, uh, she, I knew she had diabetes and I connected it to, to, to diabetes for some, for some reason, but she was a really good tennis player. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't negative, but, uh, that was all I knew about the disease. Um, but I learned very quickly all the different things that could go wrong, uh, which is what they told me. Of course, they mm. said, you've got to test your blood sugar. You got to inject insulin and without insulin, you're going to be dead. Wow. Um, That's pretty they, terrifying to hear at 16 years old, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely horrible. They even yeah. said to me, if, if, if insulin, uh, if you had been diagnosed 70 years earlier, uh, you would be uh, dead now because wow. there was no insulin to be given to people like yourself. So, you know, that, that put me actually into, um, uh, I passed out in front of the nurse yeah. when she told me that because it was, it was a horrible message. You know, within a few hours, my parents uh, came to the hospital and walked into my room. And, uh, you know, I still remember the faces, my mother crying, my father very, very severe. And, uh, you know, they, they knew this was bad and um, it, it was shown on their faces. Yeah. So um, we as a family, we, we really um, uh, tried to learn, uh, all of us. I mean, myself, my two sisters, I can imagine how tough it was for them as well because all the focus was on me for a while mm -hmm. um, and um, and uh, we needed to change our diet they um, I, I, I have since heard because my youngest sister at the time was only five mm -hmm. uh, she, I'm 11 years older and uh, and she had said to my mother and no one told me this until recently she'd said to my mother can I please um, I don't want to eat ice cream anymore I don't want to have any sugar anymore uh, I, maybe I can be diabetic instead of my Aww. sister well, because she, she, she thought it would be better if she would have diabetes because I was doing so many things and, mm. and she wasn't yet. And it's amazing how she was going to take on that burden of, of diabetes. At for five her. years old. Oh, wow. I, it's horrible to me. It's really yeah. horrible. Uh, but it's, it shows her, uh, you know, commitment to her, to her sister and how much mm. she, she idolized me at that time uh, and, uh, and wanted me to be healthy. So uh, it's, uh, it, was, it was tough. It's really tough. Yeah. So you've spent the rest of your life since then managing this illness because they must have told you this is an illness you're going to have for the rest of your life and you're going to spend the rest of your life managing it, right? Yeah. I mean, in my case, it's a little complicated since I have a pancreas transplant, but I, I, wow. um, I, was, um, uh, I was told that this is a chronic disease. It will mm -hmm. never go away. Um, maybe in contrast to the US, when I was diagnosed, uh, no one told me about a cure. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, they, did, they, they said people are working on solutions, but um, they didn't really say, oh, there will be a cure in your lifetime. They just said you need to manage it tightly so that you don't get blind and you don't lose your kidneys or your limbs. Um, well, so that's not even more terrifying <laughs> after all the no, news you'd already received. Very tough, very tough. Yeah. So, uh, and, and of course I wasn't, um, you know, five, six, I was 16. So I could also mm -hmm. read very well and I was a, a very good student. So I, I started doing research and, and, and saw all the consequences of a bad, uh, you know, of a bad prognosis. Um, mm. 
and, and, and what happened to people with diabetes. In Sweden, I think they do something quite well, which I did not embrace, was that mm -hmm. immediately upon diagnosis of a type one, not type two, you get put in what's called a diabetes school. So mm -hmm. you go for a week, um, you know, you're not an inpatient, but you go every day to the hospital and you get to meet other people with type one and, uh, and learn the techniques and diet. Wow. And, uh, I said to everyone, including my parents, that I refuse to go to such a school because I could learn myself and I don't want to mm -hmm. see other people with this disease because it really scared me uh, to see others who lived with this disease and to, um, because my belief was that they were going to be so sick. Um, yeah, which is so interesting because they were actually, the doctors seemed to have been giving you community right off the bat, but you absolutely. weren't ready for it. No, I really didn't want community. I didn't mm -hmm. want to be like anyone else with diabetes because I saw that as a, a negative. Sure. So I just wanted to be like I had been before, uh, you know, mm -hmm. a great athlete and a good student and, and someone who didn't have any problems. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't want to be like those others who had the disease and needed to inject insulin and, you know, dependent on insulin. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I felt very much less than others. Sure. And I did not want to be part of that group of people who I saw were less than um, yeah. other people. So that was a mistake, clearly. But it was my reaction as a teenager. And I don't think one that could be called atypical either. I think a lot of teenagers and, and even adults would have reactions like that upon hearing quite drastic news about their own health and sort of hearing the bad news about all of it. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, uh, the moment of diagnosis and the first few hours after diagnosis, they're so critical. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's really, but it also, of course, it's, it's important to imprint on people how how severe the disease is because you have yeah. to take it seriously so it's a very complex message that the healthcare professionals need to give you and I still don't know what is the best way I mm. I, I think that everyone is different mm. and um, I, I I don't know how trained you know the personnel is to realize how different people are because sure. if I'd been a person maybe a little bit more mature um, maybe I would have understood that it was important to connect. But, yes. Uh, you know, here I was pretty, I think, pretty immature because I was um, always somewhat sheltered, you know, mm. as, a, as an athlete, as a student. You know, I was someone who never really needed to, to worry um, except for my own, you know, performance that I could control. Uh, and here it was something that I couldn't control. And, and I was, I was, I felt totally lost because yeah. as someone who was controlling everything and, and doing it pretty well, I, I felt like I had lost my whole bearing in life. I mean, mm. it was, it was really tough. Um, so it's not easy to, to see that within a few minutes of diagnosis that, you know, maybe to this girl, we don't need to scare her because she will find out mm. and, and she shouldn't be put with other people because my entire life I'd been you know, trying not to be like others. I wanted to be better. <laughs> and mm. here I was told that I was worse. So right. it, it was, it was a really tough moment. Yeah, I'm sure it, I mean, it obviously turned your world around um, and forced you to change your perspective on a lot of things, I imagine. So you mentioned that you, you also had a pancreas transplant. Can you talk to us a bit about what led up to that surgery and, and what role that's played in your health as well? Yeah, that's a, it's a it's a really it's kind of a long story before we get to that because sure. I was diagnosed uh, now thirty years ago, mm. and um, I uh, the first ten years. I mean, my my uh, my reaction after that shock was mm. um, a very good one in the sense that I I dug very deep into the disease. I decided I wanted to go to medical school. I was not going to be a tennis uh, <laughs> mm. uh, player. And uh, uh, so I really shaped it shaped the course of your life after that, for sure. Abso absolutely. Mm. You know, I studied medicine. I did my Ph.D. in record time mm. uh, in the area of diabetes. I came to the U.S. to do a postdoc in diabetes mm. research at Harvard. And uh, I continued to work in healthcare, uh, always focused on innovation and, and finding new solutions. So, you know, it drove me to do better and to use my you know, my capabilities um, in, in, to the benefit of others. And, mm. and that's really what originated Lifebulb. I mean, I realized that um, my role maybe here uh, <laughs> on this planet is to use my experiences not only um, as someone who studied a lot and someone who's experienced a lot in work or in business, but 
also someone who's experienced um, uh, disease firsthand. And yeah. if I can convey that and I can convert that into lessons and um, uh, inspiration, you know, for others who are in a similar position who, who may not have all the advantages that I've had, um, I, I think I can do something good uh, with something that was very bad. So, uh, you know, my, my first 10 years after diagnosis, I was very driven to, to just show the world that nothing could stop me from what I wanted, which was, you know, my education and, and to be a successful professional. Mm. Uh, was after, it something, sorry to cut in really quickly here, but was it something that you were open with people about as well from that point on that you were living with this chronic no. illness? It mm. took me 20 years to be wow. open with that. Yeah. So the first 10 years, no one knew. And uh, yeah. I, did, uh, I did all these things um, in, in, in studies. And, uh, and then my first kind of few years of, uh, uh, not even, the first 10 years, I, I really, uh, you know, it was between 16 and 26. It was mm. a medical school PhD and uh, internship and, and the start of my postdoc. You know, I mm. came to the U.S. as a postdoc. Um, and, and from then on, I, I didn't manage my, di- my diabetes as well. Uh, I think it was my transition from Sweden to the U.S. and, and an opportunity to kind of be a new person and, um, you know, feeling that I was now um, in a professional setting where I was in a very competitive space that I couldn't, I couldn't even less, uh, hmm. you know, accommodate my diabetes. So and no one knew I had diabetes in medical school. No one knew I had diabetes among my friends. Um, for the first 10 years, but at Harvard and then in New York working on Wall Street, no one definitely knew I had diabetes. Um, And here I wouldn't even accommodate my diabetes. I mean, in the past, Mm. I would step away. I would make sure when I had a low, I would fix it. I I would, um, uh, you know, do things that um, accommodated my disease, even though I hid it. So it Mm. was difficult, but I hid it. Um, you know, starting in um, uh, in the U.S. Uh, when I when I started my professional career, I just tried to manage my diabetes in a way so it it wouldn't need to be accommodated for, which mm-hmm. meant that I kept my blood sugar a little bit higher. Um, so if my blood sugar is constantly slightly high, uh, I I never go low, and right. I could I could you know skip meals, I could eat, um, but also could, don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> Yeah, it's a terrible way of managing diabetes. Yeah. It's it's uh, it's definitely very self-destructive. It's mm. um, it's it's not good, yeah. but um, it uh, allowed for me to hide my disease for another you know seven or so years, mm. um, and then it all collapsed for me because my body couldn't take it anymore. I was uh, uh, instead of being uh, uh, coming out as a diabetic and just saying I have this chronic disease where I have to inject every day several times. Mm. I had to say, I now have a kidney failure, I have eye disease, and mm. I'm in a serious state where I'm a walking stroke risk. Mm. Uh, I may become blind in the next few months, and I may need dialysis, mm. um, and uh, I needed to take care of myself. So yeah. um, within uh, two years of, uh, of that realization, uh, I made a few changes. You know, number yeah. one, I, I decided I didn't want to work just in the finance of healthcare. I wanted to work as a, as an operator or as someone who was actually close to patients and, mm. and doing things with diabetes again, going back to my roots. So I, 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 I did that. I, I took a job with J&J and, and worked um, openly as a person with diabetes and in mm. the space of diabetes. Um, and I also, uh, now people knew I had diabetes, so I could accommodate somewhat when there was a birthday cake, I could say no, because mm-hmm. I'm, you know, this is not good for me in the past. I would just, um, you know, have a difficult discussion and, and people would think maybe I was anorectic or I was just didn't like their, their party. Right. Uh, and I, I rather took that versus, um, uh, having the conversation. So it was wow. easier. But it was too late because within two years of this transition into being more open and, and living a, a healthier life, I, uh, I was told that my kidneys were now down to 10% and I needed a kidney transplant. Wow. So, but I still, it still didn't show, you know, if you're talking about invisible, you know, when I was in, at my worst, I, I looked great. Because I was yeah. very, I was very thin. I was uh, glowing. I, mm. uh, I, uh, I looked uh, looked successful. I was successful professionally, and um, I didn't, I didn't see my. I maybe, what I did, which was the only thing probably that showed, was that I was uh, uh, often declining invitations last minute or changing my mind. 
I, I just didn't have the energy uh, to, to do everything. And I always prioritized uh, work and, um, uh, and my family took, uh, took a beating and, and my friends did because I knew I would still have them. And I could just uh, be rude or, or be uh, short or, 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 or as I was always very hopeful, I would just tell people, oh, no, I, I can't do it tonight because I was exhausted. Uh, you know, I was, I was too tired um, to, to, to do the things that, um, you know, a normal person my age uh, could do because my body was breaking down. Mm. Uh, my, my hemoglobin was down to six. Uh, my blood pressure was 220 over 180. And um, I, I was not in good shape. Mm. So um, I went for the kidney transplant. And my father was uh, incredibly nice and gave me a kidney. So wow. um, we, uh, we did the kidney transplant now 11 years ago in New York City at uh, Columbia Presbyterian, which was a new experience because now I, uh, <laughs> I, I was still very much in need of control. Here I was, I was getting rid of my native kidneys and uh, uh, getting a kidney from someone else, my father, uh, that I now needed to really take care of because otherwise I, I, I would de be dependent on dialysis, which right. uh, you know, I couldn't even imagine doing. Um, but uh, I wanted to live. I, I mean, that was, that was definitely um, part of the plan, even though at times, many times I was thinking if it was worth it because the struggle and the, and the fight to even, even, uh, even go on uh, with, the, with, with, the, with the issues uh, was, was just hard, very hard. Yeah. But getting a kidney from my father very much changed that because now I had him giving up an organ, mm. uh, taking a big risk. And uh, who, how could I not take care of that kidney? Right. I it expanded a, had, your sense of personal responsibility, it sounds like. Yeah. And, uh, but when I was offered the kidney or, or told that I needed the kidney, um, first, I didn't know if I would get one from my father, I would go on a waiting list, which would be more yeah. like five years, um, which I, I probably wouldn't have survived. But um, I got after or, or during the conversation of the kidney, they also said the doctors um, that if you do the kidney, we recommend you do a pancreas transplant because the pancreas, if it's successful, will help the kidney uh, mm. since you won't need uh, to take insulin anymore. Your, ah. your diabetes will be cured uh, if it's successful. Uh, the, uh, the pancreas transplant in contrast to kidney is, is much less common they do about a hundred a year in the U.S. Wow. and um, and it's much much more severe surgery. I mean, it's a seven to eight hour surgery versus maybe one hour. Uh, but and, clearly, um, it was something that they they felt that you as a patient were more in need of if there are that few that are done. They they thought so because of my age, my my kind of physical condition. I was still in very good good shape, even though I had uh, a kidney failure. I my heart was good, my vessels were good. I I was relatively young. Hmm. And um, uh, they felt that the upside of not having diabetes anymore would be so great for me because I was a so-called brittle diabetic, which means that my blood sugar was going up and down tremendously without me really feeling it anymore. Mm. So um, uh, I was a perfect candidate in the sense that they thought I would survive and, and thrive um, uh, you know, with the surgery. Which, which has a mortality risk otherwise, the surgery. And, and then the other thing was, because I got the kidney and I needed the kidney, I was going to be on these immunosuppressants. Uh, mm. uh, and those drugs are exactly the same for the pancreas. So mm. since I was already doing this, this regimen um, of, um, of, of, uh, of the uh, immunosuppressant therapy and, uh, and also other therapy that prevents infections for a period of time, um, I, I would know the drill. And I wouldn't have to change any drugs um, when, I, when I had gone through the surgery. So, so there, there was a lot of upside. I mean, the downside was, what if I didn't survive the surgery? What if the surgery doesn't succeed and, and I have surgical complications? You know, uh, so I looked at all that and I looked mm -hmm. at, you know, the surgeon's record and, uh, <laughs> and I, I, I decided that I would take the risk of the surgery and, and go for the pancreas transplant. So quick nine question months in here is, oh, sorry, quick question in here is I'm wondering, cause you know, there are people who are listening who might be type one diabetics going, oh, so I can cure my type one diabetes and just get a new pancreas. Like surely I can go ask my doctor, but it's not as simple as that, is it? 
No, not at all. Um, uh, you're not really eligible for a pancreas transplant unless you are in need of a kidney transplant, mm. which was my case, or you are a so-called brittle diabetic where your uh, blood sugar goes low and you don't notice it and you have um, a, a strong risk of passing out. Mm. Um, and so brittle diabetics, people with severe complications, could be that they're about to go blind or, or right. they have kidney failure, uh, that's when pancreas transplants are done mm. uh, because the risk and you don't do it in children at all. So, mm. you know, you don't, you don't do pancreas transplants in, in someone who's less than 18 uh, because you need to be on immunosuppressants for the rest of your life. Mm. And, and that, that risk, I mean, my, my, I had no choice because of my kidney. Right. Um, so the immunosuppressants that I'm on, um, they, uh, have, uh, they, they, it means that I have a higher risk of infection. I mean, now with Corona, I'm definitely oh at a high, yeah, I'm at a higher risk. I'm about, probably about double or three times mortality um, uh, if I get it. If right. I get corona, my risk of, of dying is much higher than someone who um, uh, is not immunosuppressed. Mm. Um, I also have a higher risk of lymphoma and uh, skin cancers. Wow. So, you know, yeah, but to me, uh, it was in really, really worth it because... Yeah. For the kidney, I mean, the kidney saved my life, but my pancreas transplant made my life worth living again, mm -hmm. since I now had uh, total freedom from uh, uh, my diabetes. From your uh, insulin injections especially, right? Well, yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. I, I, I do not need uh, any exogenous insulin anymore. And my A1C, which is the measurement of long-term glucose control, is less than five. So, you know, my pancreas transplant really enabled me. And but I think more importantly, it gave me um, a few insights that, that really made me change my direction. Because mm. after my pancreas transplant, you know, I was now working in corporate, um, not on Wall Street, but on, in, in a corporate setting where I was uh, either a chief medical officer or someone who was looking at uh, innovation um, for a big company. And I, I, I enjoyed my work. I was doing, uh, you know, good, good things for, for people in general. But, you know, I was not at all in control because I was working for a company and I, I didn't... I didn't use my experience as a person with disease at all in these settings. I was using my experience as a scientist or as a business person. So after my pancreas transplant, I realized um, that there were so many things uh, that, that I had struggled with uh, as living with a person with diabetes. I mean, your whole uh, concept of uh, being in, uh, having an invisible uh, disease yeah. It was, it was, it was so true. You know, I had something when no one thought I, they thought I was, uh, you know, the picture of health yeah. and, and yet I was making 200 to 300 extra decisions a day because mm -hmm. of my diabetes. Yeah. And when I no longer needed to take insulin and measure my blood sugar and, and fear the lows and the highs and, you know, do accommodations for my diabetes, I suddenly had all this energy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, 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 instead of being most of the time very tired and, and sad, I was happy. Yeah. Uh, I, I could walk down the street and just, you know, and, and, and just feel inspired and happy because I wasn't worrying all the time. So that was my immediate reaction. But then since I'm, you know, analytical, I started writing down, what are the things that are better, you know, and I would never have um, understood or even realized that the things that I was accommodating, that I was doing every day because of my diabetes, I didn't realize that they were not normal for everyone. Mm. Because 20 years with the disease, it yeah. became normal. And, and, and that was one of the big pillars for the development of life goal. Because mm. you know, when, what we are realizing is that patients can be innovators. Mm. You know, patients, uh, the realizations of what is the daily burden with disease no one knows that better than those who live with the disease on Absolutely. a daily basis. Mm. So if you can articulate the insights in a way that then can be uh, analyzed and, and then can be addressed through innovation, uh, we really can come up with better products that address the unmet patient needs versus the unmet medical needs. And, mm. and often those are different. You know, an unmet patient need may be totally different than the unmet medical need that a doctor is um, uh, you know, saying is the biggest problem for a person with diabetes. That may not be the biggest problem that that person with diabetes actually is, is ex ex experiencing. Mm. 
Mm. So, uh, you know, the two uh, big insights for me uh, through my own personal experience with disease that were the foundation of life bulb. Number one, patients need patients. Yeah. You know, I, I never connected with another person. And I think if I had, I would have been a better patient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Instead, I, you know, did deep research and, uh, and try to figure it out myself with experts who were not patients. But if I had connected with another patient, maybe I would have felt that it wasn't so bad. You know, yeah. diabetes is just a disease like MS or cancer or, you know, we, we're all, we all affected by something. Uh, no one is perfect. And, you know, having diabetes is just a part of part of life, not really something that is making me uh, a total pariah. And well, that's then, interesting you use the word pariah because it sounds like you've gone from this state of constant shame about living with this illness to really embracing it as part of who you are and using your voice to to amplify the discussions about invisible illness in general, but especially about type 1 diabetes because it has had such an impact on your life. Absolutely. I mean, now I, I spend every day talking to other people with, and, and it's important to, to say it's not just type one, because I realized when we started Lifebulb, I started in diabetes, but uh, I realized pretty quickly that if I only focus on type one diabetes, it's very elitist from my perspective. <laughs> and it's saying that that's, that's just the most important disease. And it's not, yeah. you know, um, if I speak to someone who has MS or someone who has uh, Crohn's disease or anxiety or depression uh, or cancer, you know, I learn that they have it pretty uh, tough as well. Yeah. And, and it actually can make you feel better uh, that you can help someone mm. uh, maybe going through something. And I can also learn because there are many commonalities, you know, yes. the invisibility of these diseases, they are, they're very, that's, that's a commonality versus anything else. And, mm. and I also think that there are some things that are affecting us all, you know, like the strange fatigue of chronic disease. Mm. It's something that affects many people with autoimmunity and, mm. and, uh, you know, the strange, um, regulation of temperature. You know, why are people with chronic disease often cold? You know, it's, it's, it's a weird. So I think that from a scientific perspective and also from a psychosocial perspective, it is, it's very healthy to connect with others who are not just your own disease. Right. Um, it's more humane. So I think the patients need patients is a core concept for us. And number two, patients can be innovators. As I mentioned, after my pancreas transplant, I realized there were so many things I could do now mm. and that, that I, I was no longer bothered with. Um, and, and, and then I realized, well, why don't we try to innovate around those things right. um, that, that affect the person on a daily basis? And that's why we started our innovation challenges and, you know, embrace patient entrepreneurs and not just regular entrepreneurs. I, I have a, a lot of respect for anyone who starts a company. It's really tough. Yeah. But, those, <laughs> but those who are patients and are doing it, they're leaving mm. the day job and they're going about finding a, a solution to a problem like you do. Yeah. You know, you're addressing an, an issue that, you know, people wouldn't know unless they were living with the disease. And, and it's, it's very brave to do that. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think, uh, I think it's, um, it's really uh, something that should be encouraged more. Mm-hmm. Because when you do it, you're also kind of inspiring others that, you know, health can become wealth, you know, if we do yeah. it well. And, and uh, you know, the more we talk about it and the more we, we try to help others. I think the less we, we start focusing too much on our own issues, which is the worst thing we can do. Mm, absolutely. I think that's very well said. So, you know, we know that you've become an incredible patient advocate and, and gotten other patient advocates to join you and sort of created this wonderful network um, of patient leaders. I'm wondering, it sounds like, you know, your dad obviously offered you one of his kidneys. Um, your grandparents were very supportive in getting you medical care when you were first diagnosed. Did you find that you needed a personal advocate at any point in this journey to diagnosis and maintenance living with type 1 diabetes? Or do you think that you sort of shrugged it off and became your own advocate in a way as well? Well, I've, I've always had um, a very strong connection to, um, to medical people. You know, I've always had a good doctor. Right. Uh, so, so I had, uh, and I had good mentors, um, mm. strong mentors in, in business that I connected with. So I, I've, I've been very lucky that I've had female uh, mentors. I've had, you know, wonderful doctors who I trust. 
but I've never had a patient advocate, someone who is another, you know, an individual who is living with the same disease. I, I, because I never connected that way. Sure. And uh, so, so no, I, I think I became my own advocate. And yeah. then I realized that through life bulb, really, mm. um, I, and I, uh, I spent time at the JDRF. I mean, I spent two mm. years there. Um, and, um, you know, it was, it was more difficult because, um, I had a pancreas transplant. So I, I wasn't, it wasn't so easy to identify for people with me because I was no Your longer period. diabetic. Right. Um, and, and therefore it was confusing. Mm. Although, you know, I'm still type one. I, I, if I don't take my immunosuppressants, I will get my disease back. Mm. Uh, if I lose my pancreas transplant through rejection or, you know, fibrosis, I will get my type one back and that probably will happen in my lifetime. So that's, that's, uh, that's the, uh, the lifetime of a pancreas transplant is not probably the lifetime of a person. Right. So, so we don't know that, but, uh, I, I wish I'd had, um, an advocate. I, I think, uh, but since my personality is so controlling mm. and, and so independent and sure. I was rejecting the whole concept of being sick, I, I just never reached out. Yeah, absolutely. But it's so great that being around other patients has really enhanced or softened your relationship to chronic illness. You know, it sounds like you've gone from, as we've said, that place of shame to this place of not only acceptance, but excitement about communing with people who are living with similar illnesses. And that's a real driver behind the work that you do and very exciting for all of us to be seeing. Oh, right now I, I'm living my best life because yes. I get to do, I get to interact with other people who I learn from every single day. You yeah. know, the more, the more patients I get to speak to, the better it is. And every time I, uh, I, I learn something, mm-hmm. uh, which is my, my biggest, you know, if, if you ask me one thing I, I like to do every day is to learn something new. I, I love that. And, you know, here I'm learning from those who come from so many different backgrounds. I mean, I speak to people who, you know, work at home. I speak to people who are nuclear physicists. I speak yeah. to someone who, and, and they all are, uh, ha- are all experts. You know, they're yeah. all experts in their own disease. And, and that to me is fantastic. Um, mm. You know, they, 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 are, they can be articulate. Uh, they, they, they express themselves differently. And you know, some people are like me. <laughs> and maybe maybe that's more you know difficult to get the emotions out but but and some people are incredibly emotional and then you need to understand what the facts are it's it's really it's really great um mm. it, it gives me a lot of pleasure and uh, i uh, uh i also feel accepted yes um, uh, you know i feel accepted probably for the first time in my life because mm. i never saw it before yeah. i never saw it i didn't want to be accepted i wanted to stand out mm. and now i feel very much that i have a I have a community mm. uh, you know and my community is not diabetes or transplant or you know heart or whatever it's it's the community of people with uh, with chronic disease who who want to connect yeah. you know that's that's the community and it's it's wonderful Yes, absolutely. So what does a typical day look like for you now? I know at a certain point you would have been sort of, you know, giving yourself a bolus or running to inject your insulin in places, but it's very different now. I mean, I know you mentioned you're on the immunosuppressants. How are you balancing the demands of work and life as you're managing potential symptoms? Yeah, I don't really have symptoms more than uh, the side effects of the immunosuppressants. And those, right. um, to me, the biggest ones, and they are really bothersome, is the gastrointestinal ones. Uh-huh. So um, I, I do take my immunosuppressants in the morning and in the evening, so 12 hours apart. Um, and uh, they unfortunately trigger side effects that, uh, that cause, um, uh, cause just uh, upset stomach, uh, mm-hmm. nausea. Uh, so I do have to balance uh, what I eat. I have to sure. still be very cautious um, about what I eat. And, and that, that's something that I, I, I do have to think about every single day. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the, um, uh, other than that, I, 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 I just, I think I have a regular life. I have a you know, two-year-old and um, I, uh, uh, I balance my work life with uh, taking care of her, uh, which, which takes a lot of sort of time, but that gives me a lot of pleasure as well. Mm, absolutely. So it sounds like also in this journey to founding Lifebulb and becoming one with, you know, the chronic illness that you're, you used to live with, right? Um, 
it sounds like you were justifying, having to justify more to yourself than to others that you had type one diabetes. Did you ever find yourself in a situation where you were confronted and you had to explain to someone what was going on with you? I remember, especially once, I was really sick. I mean, this mm. was um, when I was about to uh, to collapse totally. And I, 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 I went to the emergency room. I was in Stockholm in Sweden at the time. And uh, that day was the Stockholm Marathon. And I went to the emergency room because I, I, I realized I was very, very sick and I needed to... Uh, to get help uh, mm. and I had sneakers on uh, because I was uh, preparing for uh, <laughs> I wasn't wearing uh, nice shoes right uh, and uh, and they said to me oh did you just run the marathon and mm. and, I, and I said no I'm, I'm quite sick so okay you can sit and wait over there they really mm. didn't think I was sick and and then they finally took my blood pressure my blood pressure was as I mentioned 220 over 180 and they said, what's wrong with you? I said, well, I have diabetes and I have probably kidney disease. And they immediately took my blood and they said, well, your hemoglobin is down to six. You need a blood transfusion and your uh, urine is full of protein. So you have this massive proteinuria and they admitted me, uh, you know, on the spot. But right. when I walked in in my sneakers, they thought I came from the marathon and I was mm. just, you know, abusing their time. So, wow. so that, that clearly, um, uh, you know, was a misunderstanding. I, I, I have to say, I, I have, I'm probably have encountered that many times that people have not thought I was sick, but it has never bothered me. You know, mm. uh, I, I, I prefer to be uh, seen as someone who's, who's not sick versus someone who, who is sick. Uh, but what, what it has bothered me is if, if I, I don't complain much. And if I say to someone who is in my you know, family or my husband or, and I say, you know, I'm not feeling well and they, they don't take it seriously. Um, that's not good. Um, yeah. but, but it sounds but, like by the time you're actually saying something's wrong, something really is wrong. You need to be taken seriously immediately. Absolutely. Um, uh, very much so. But I have to say, I, I, I think it's very hard for family and care partners and, uh, you know, mm. people around you because, if, if they, uh, because I've seen the opposite as well. If I, uh, when I had diabetes, if I was a little irritable or I, you know, I was just short, uh, some, they would say, oh, are you low in blood sugar again? Uh, mm. Is your blood sugar low? And, you know, not everything has to do with your disease. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and I could just be irritable because they were bad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, or, you know, something else went on in my life. So, so it's very hard for them to, to and I think that's, that's the topic of a, uh, of a, of, a, of a definitely a podcast or, yeah. or something because you know we can't we need to educate the care partners on how to treat you know people with chronic disease because it's not easy mm -hmm. they they want to be very careful uh, and not to tell you that oh you're sick and you can't do this and that you know how many people have told me i need to leave new york now because of coronavirus wow and i don't want to leave new york i don't want to <laughs> and and but then if 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 they don't say to me oh you, you are you worried about coronavirus then i also get upset because right. i should they should they should care about me <laughs> yeah so you know and the same thing goes with food because food uh you know if, if i get if i go to the home of someone and they serve me you know a lot of sugar and uh, you know spicy food and i can't eat that i get offended because they should they should know that but then if they only serve me you know bland food and everyone else gets something good i also <laughs> feel like they're not treating me right so so it's really hard it's really mm -hmm. hard I, I think finding um the right uh, educating um your partners and and family and friends and how you want to be treated yes. uh, is also the patient's responsibility. Uh, Very much we, so. Yeah. Absolutely. And what about, I know you've had these experiences, you know, in and out of healthcare, of course. Have you ever experienced any undue prejudice or privilege in the healthcare system, particularly as regards your self-identity? So in other words, because you're a white female, can you see your circumstances being perhaps different if you presented otherwise in various instances in which you've had contact with the healthcare system? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm privileged in being a, a white female mm -hmm. uh, and, and also an MD. Yeah. You know? I present as a doctor and therefore I get treated more as a colleague and um, I get respect immediately. 
you know, if I don't say I'm an MD, I'm, I could I could be seen as a white, uh, you know, blonde uh, bimbo, and that's sure. also not not very good. But at no. least I get I get attention. Mm. Um, but but um, I may not be uh, I may be patronized versus mm. uh, now I'm being very respected. Um, so I think I have a, I have a lot of privileges that that if I had been you know of a of a different race and uh, and uh, you know living in a different uh, city or mm. or environment I would probably not have had the same. And so yes, I think I think uh, uh, where you live, what you look like, and and your educational level and how you speak. Yeah. Um, really affects how you're treated in the, in the healthcare system. Absolutely. So, you know, one of- more thing, one more yeah. thing there, because this is important. Um, I also think it 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 affects outcomes. You know, if you're if you're in the system, um, being an inpatient, and you cannot articulate well, you know, what your your symptoms are and what your disease background is, uh, I would be so worried because then you really need an advocate with you because mm-hmm. when you're really sick, I mean, I remember I passed out. I also have a pacemaker because my um, autonomic function was impaired by diabetes. So I, I needed mm-hmm. a pacemaker um, and I, I passed out I mean, a few times on the street and I was taken to the emergency room and, and they didn't know I had a, a kidney transplant, a pancreas transplant and, and they wanted to give me IV um, contrast. And that, that could have ruined my, my one kidney. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and I knew that I couldn't have IV contrast. And I had to fight not to get it. Uh, right. But if I had not been educated and if I had not been you know, respected in the same sense, I'm sure things could have happened. So yeah. um, I think you can't be too sick and you can't be too old and weak to be in the healthcare system and be a survivor, then you really need, um, you know, a friend or a family member. And so, so yeah, it's, it's tough. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of the healthcare system and given the number of other patient leaders who you've spoken to, I'm sure you have a lot of opinions on this, but I'm wondering where our healthcare system from your perspective is working for patients mm-hmm. and in what ways it's falling short and requiring improvements that even perhaps you might have ideas about immediately. Sure. I mean, I have also, I think because I have experienced the Swedish system yes. as well as the U S system. So I have the two very different systems. Yeah. Um, so I think the U S system is incredibly good when you have a very severe condition um, because you have the world's experts here you can get the best possible care if you can pay for it. Um, there's so, the eye, there's the rub. <laughs> right, right. So if I, I would not have been able to have such successful surgery um, if I hadn't had insurance uh, and I, I, I wasn't able to access these doctors. I mean, when I was looking to do my pancreas transplant, I, they had done two pancreas transplants at the hospital where I did my kidney transplant in New York. And I'm in the best... I mean, one of the best places in the world to do surgery in New York City, but they'd only done two. Um, and I did a little research and I found that University of Minnesota had done 1,000. The same doctor uh, had done 1,000. So obviously I, I tried to go to Minnesota because I wanted to be number 1,001 versus mm. number three. Uh, so, you know, the U.S. Is, is the place to go if you have access and, and, and you can do the research and you can uh, pay for it. Um, it, Sweden, um, everyone gets good care. You know, you don't have to be, yeah. um, you, everyone has the same insurance. Um, we, uh, we all get, uh, you know, basic, uh, treatment. However, if you really need it and, uh, you, you, you have to be, you, you have to wait. I mean, people can wait for months to get, uh, a hip uh, replacement, um, that if you are in New York and you can get access to hospital for special surgery, you can do it next week here. Uh, so there, the, it really depends on what category you are, um, what is better. Uh, I would say the other thing that is uh, in Sweden, because the government pays for your insurance, um, or not the government, we all pay. I mean, people, yeah. taxpayers pay. Uh, the um, uh, prevention is very important. So doctors and, uh, and clinics uh, all emphasize prevention, while in the U.S. prevention is definitely not paid for, and it's not at all emphasized because doctors are paid for intervention, not prevention. 
and therefore yeah. prevention is is just not something that normally is offered. You have to go to alternative uh, doctors, alternative therapists, or you know treatments, and they are always almost um, uh, not covered. So, so true. So if you want prevention and you're not naturally, uh, you know, a, a person who, who keeps a diet and does exercise, and then you really have to pay out of pocket. Um, and that is even more difficult for those who do not have access to, to uh, capital, to, to resources. So I think the discrepancy in the system, uh, you know, is very, very wide in the U.S. You know, the, 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 the top treatments, um, the acute treatments, which I think are, are probably the best in the world, um, are offered to to those who can, um, uh, and 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 prevention is also offered to those who who can um, uh, get them. So so it's uh, it's different. Uh, you know, I know yeah. for for a fact that I I because I have access, I was better off in the U.S. Uh, but if I had been in a different position, I would have not. Um, and and you could also say that maybe if I had been in Sweden and never come to the U.S. Maybe I never need. I would have needed a kidney transplant because right. I would I would have behaved very differently. I wouldn't have been running around, you know, mistreating myself, um, trying to to work so hard, never take vacation, and you know, mismanaging relationships and all that stuff that you know we do because we want to hustle. It's, so, it's interesting uh, you say that because it it seems like work life balance is just it's the U.S. that's creating the problem, right? That like this idea that we have to be constantly hustling is a yeah. very American ideal. It's very individualistic, isn't it? Whereas it is. there's more the attitude in Sweden that like healthcare is a human right, which is not something mm -hmm. that we've taken on psychologically here in the U.S. I think uh, it's beyond healthcare being a human right in, in countries like Sweden, Switzerland, you know, Norway, Denmark, uh, it's it's quality of life is a human right mm. you know people people um take their vacations people you know men take their paternity leave you know maternity leave is 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 very <laughs> generous uh, I, but it's very hard to compare with such small little countries uh with the entire united states it's easier to manage the system when you've got eight million people like uh, the size of new york city versus, you know, 300 million people who come from very different backgrounds, you know, different educational levels. Um, so I, I, it's, it's hard. You can't just take one model and, and apply it to another um, uh, country uh, that is so different in its, uh, in its origin and in, in the way it was formed. You know, I came to the U.S. for a reason. Um, I came because there was opportunity in the U.S. that probably didn't exist in Sweden. Um, there was a certain attitude in the U.S. that still doesn't exist in Europe, which is the attitude that you can fail and still make it. And mm -hmm. uh, everyone has an opportunity if you're healthy and successful. So, you know, for a young, uh, uh, successful or, or, or strong individual, and you want to be an entrepreneur or you want to work in a special industry, the U.S. is incredibly attractive. Um, if you're older or sick, uh, and and you're not as competitive. It's really tough, uh, and and you know that that may not be fair, but it's it's a it's a really tough environment to be in the U.S. I I agree, and the changes, the differences between the very successful and and rich and the the ones who don't make it, you know, are just getting greater. Um, you know, we're seeing that more and more also in the European countries because we're seeing more immigration, um, and therefore we're getting. You know, when I grew up in Sweden, there was one black girl in my entire school, uh, you know, we, and she was adopted. So everyone else was, uh, you know, blonde and blue eyed, essentially. Some, some were brunettes. Uh, so, so when you grow up in an environment like that, it, it is easier to manage versus an environment where everyone looks different. I mean, I, for one, I much prefer an environment where everyone looks different. You all have an individual you know, right to express yourself. And if, if you go to an environment where you're all being treated the same, I'm sure that there will be issues with that too. So we need to find something that is uh, addressing, you know, both, uh, both the positives and the negatives. Yeah. I, I agree. Absolutely. It's almost like we need to find a happy medium between these two systems, isn't it? You know, in terms of way of life, but also in terms of access to medical care. Like neither is perfect, but maybe we can find a way to get something in the middle that will work for everyone. 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Mm. I, th- I think there, there may be. I mean, I think Germany and Switzerland are closer. Yes. They do have, they do have a basic uh, healthcare that everyone has, and then you mm-hmm. have the opportunity to add to that. And I think that's, that's, that's good because yeah. everyone, everyone should have access to healthcare. There, it's, there should be no uh, doubt about that, but uh, you also need to be able to add to it. Mm, absolutely. I think having those options open makes it more appealing for sure. So as we come to the end of this interview, I like to wrap things up with a couple of top three lists. And I was wondering for the top three list, what your top three tips might be for someone who suspects perhaps they have something off. They, maybe they've been diagnosed with an invisible chronic condition. Um, maybe it's type one diabetes in particular. What would your top three tips be for individuals who are managing chronic illness? So they've been diagnosed. Maybe, they don't know yet. Yeah, or maybe they don't know yet, but maybe they're entering that world of invisible illness. Just what kind of advice would you give to people who are either on the precipice or really in it um, and yeah. are feeling a bit lost? So I think number one is to really get access to information, good information, uh, to educate yourself as much as possible. Uh, I think knowledge is real power. Uh, and before you start fearing things or or even speaking to others i think just get yourself educated as much as you can to me that's that's very important number two i think find um find a community or find at least one person uh to connect with find if you are a person who likes to be in groups then then find a community if you're a person like me who who likes to maybe be uh, one-on-one and and really get deep into into things find a few people that you can speak to one-on-one, maybe one who's more on the medical side, one who's a patient, one who understands, you know, how to navigate the system uh, legally, you know, financially, all that kind of stuff. I think find your little network, um, build your network. And I think the not-for-profits, the patient organizations are often very good because they they do have those kind of things built Mm. up. And within each disease area, we always recommend uh, to to go to, to them because that's what they do. Um, uh, so I think number two is really get yourself a little network. Um, and then number three, maybe even more importantly, you know, understand that this is part of your life now, but it doesn't define you. So, you know, make mm-hmm. it part of your life. It, it, you can't, you can't put it into a little bucket and, and say, this is what I do one hour a day. You know, you got to realize that you have to change. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's wrong to say, oh, you can be exactly the same. But, uh, you know, you now have diabetes or you now have MS. Mm. It's going to affect everything you do. So you better realize that and just say, this is part of my life, but I'm going to be a great person. I'm going to be continue to be a good person. And, but I will accommodate because I want to live. And I want to live, not just live, but I want to thrive. So I think to thrive with a chronic disease, you're not, you need to make it part of you um, and not, you know, try to fight it all the time. Absolutely, which it sounds like you've also done. Um, so you're a great example of doing that too. So the last top three list is top three things that give you unbridled joy that you're totally unwilling to compromise on. So this could be guilty pleasures, secret indulgences. It could also be comfort activities. Just three things that give you all the happiness in the world that are absolute uncompromising choices in your life. Okay, number one, two and three, but I'll just give you one is uh, time with my daughter. It, I was waiting for that. <laughs> there is absolutely nothing that makes me happier. I mean, mm. it, it is, I just think about her and I, I, I smile, I laugh, I almost, I, I almost cry. Mm. She makes me so happy. It is, and I will never compromise that time or, or you know, to do anything for her. That is, mm. uh, it's very difficult for me to, to, <laughs> to think about reprimanding her ever. Um, <laughs> number two is, is really being uh, with my family, also including my husband, because when the three of us are together, it's even better. And mm. so, you know, the, the unity of, uh, of that uh, and, and, and being with her alone is really incredible, but being together, the three of us, is is remarkable so that is number two for me is is the the little unity of that uh, uh, our little family um you know number three which is more of a guilty pleasure is i I actually love my my total alone time as well which is you know i'm in bed i i have a cup of tea and i have you know something that i enjoy like a piece of chocolate or or 
even a piece of cheese or something that I don't eat much of, but just like a small piece. And I watch a really bad movie or TV series. Oh, yeah. Something, something that I cannot, I do not need to engage my, my brain at all. I just watch it and, you know, it could be like an old episode of Dynasty or, or, or you know, <laughs> that ages, ages me, but I, <laughs> not I, at all. But I, I watch <laughs> stuff like that too. So I get it. <laughs> but I need that. I really need it. And I do it when, you know, she's asleep or he's away, but it's so amazing. I, mm. I totally relax. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. And do you mind if I ask also about what it was like going through the process of, of having your daughter as well, like managing Sure. No suppressants and everything. I mean, that has to have been something that you were very aware of and had to be sort of complicated in dealing with with your medical well, team. Yes. As as with everything in me, <laughs> it's mm. very complicated. So, uh, uh, you know, we uh, I spent a lot of time going through IVF to uh, to mm. conceive her. I actually think I did twelve IVFs. Wow. Um, oh, yeah. wow. And uh, it was a process that I think if I had not been um, with my husband, it would have probably, I would have given up. But he from day one said, this is happening and, and this, will, this will be successful. He had a total optimism uh, toward this and um, it, uh, it, it eventually worked. Uh, but it wasn't just the IVF because um, I was probably, I never told my nephrologist that I, I, I did the IVF because I was recommended against it. Um, because with only one kidney and with all my uh, issues, uh, even taking the hormones would, um, would affect me negatively. And, mm. uh, and, and it was a risk, but I did it anyway, which, which uh, you know, I'm very uh, happy to say. And, uh, and I did it at a very low dose. So I, I, I wouldn't get um, overstimulated. I wouldn't um, push my kidneys or my kidney too hard. Um, so I eventually succeeded, we eventually succeeded to create an embryo that um, was healthy and uh, was our little girl. And, and then came the second process because I was not allowed to carry uh, her. I could wow. not carry. So we needed uh, to find a carrier for, for a little child because if I were to um, uh, carry a, a baby, I, um, I, could, I would have to remove my immunosuppressants because they, yeah. would, uh, they would be toxic. And then I would lose my kidney and my pancreas. And mm. I, could, I couldn't take that risk. So um, we identified an amazing lady um, mm. in, uh, uh, who carried uh, our little leave uh, for nine months. And wow. uh, we are in constant contact still. Mm. Uh, and um, it, it was a successful pregnancy. And uh, we flew out to, uh, to see her being born. And, uh, and she's, been, uh, she's been ours uh, you know, all along. Um, mm. And that, that was the whole idea. I mean, we could have adopted. And I, I think that's wonderful to do that. And maybe we would have if, if it hadn't succeeded. But uh, I don't know if we would have. I, I, I think this was the only way that would work for us. And, uh, mm. and we succeeded. Yeah, but it's it, really lovely. Yeah, it was tough. It yeah, was tough. I mean, it's, it sounds like it was definitely a journey, as so many pregnancy journeys are, really. But um, it's wonderful that it gives hope to those of us who are living with chronic illness who are going, gee, will I ever be able to have kids? And if I do, how complicated will it look? It's, it's really you know, wonderful that you've I think, done it. I think, I think that is a, uh, a topic that really requires more conversation because mm. I never talk about it really um, mm. uh, because it is so taboo. Um, and I have, if anything, I have received more criticism about that than, than, than I, because people think it is um, wrong to um, implant, you know, an embryo into another person and have them carry your child. Mm. And I, I understand that, you know, for religious reasons or for, um, uh, you know, in Sweden, for example, it's illegal. You cannot do that in Sweden. Oh, wow. You cannot have a gestational carrier. Mm. Um, and in a number, most countries in Europe, you cannot do that um, because it's considered um, you know, not right to, mm. to the woman who's carrying your, your child. You know, I, I have to say for, for, for someone who doesn't want to go through a pregnancy because they don't want to gain weight or that, that I think is, is, you know, it's their decision. It's not mm. to me as valid, but when you cannot have a child in any other right. way, I, I really think that if there is a woman uh, and not only a woman, but her husband and her family, and they agree to do this, and it actually gives them pleasure um, as well. Uh, yeah. And 
I, I think it should be allowed. Um, and uh, I, 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 I'm very happy that we did. Uh, yeah. It makes me, makes me happy uh, you know, all the time that we did. Mm. But it wasn't easy. Those, that time of going through the, uh, the IVF was incredibly tough as well. It was yeah. just a lot of disappointments. Yes. Well, I mean, that's what I hear about the most in relation to IVF in particular, that it's an emotional roller coaster and you're on all these hormones that can affect your body in myriad ways. So um, I'm just so happy that you guys got to do what you wanted to do for you and you're happy and in love with your little girl. I mean, I think that's, there's no better joy than that. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you of so course. Much. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us about your work with Lifebulb, about anything in your life at all before we sign off for today? Well, I think uh, if you uh, are interested in, in connecting with others uh, mm. across these different chronic diseases, we work in diabetes, in inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's and colitis, multiple sclerosis, MS, um, migraine, mm. uh, cancer, really across all different cancers, mm. um, mental health, uh, yep. especially depression and anxiety. And most recently now, um, also transplantation, which is a really interesting area because those individuals uh, have, don't really have a home. You know, yeah. when you have diabetes and then you get a pancreas transplant, you're no longer really part of the community as a diabetic. Yeah. And the same thing when, when you get a you know, heart transplant, you're not, no longer a heart patient, you're a mm -hmm. transplant patient. You have other issues like yeah. I have with my gastrointestinal issues or you know, skin cancer, I have to remove a basal cell you know, next week. So, so uh, if you want to be part of a community, please reach out to us, please reach out to me directly. I mean, I, I love hearing from patients. Um, I, my email is easy, Karen uh, with an I uh, at lifebulb.com and, uh, and, and connect. We, we have these incredible ambassadors of, of whom you're one. And, and we, we want to have more ambassadors, people who spread our message and share you know, our mission and, and our ethical compass as well. We, we really try to inspire through innovation because mm. I believe strongly that anyone who's living with a chronic disease is that disease's expert. And yeah. if we can find solutions to the problems that you experience, that, that's our goal. Mm. Absolutely. And where can listeners find Lifebulb and um, yep. all the various, you know, social handles that you sure. guys have got? So Lifebulb, first of all, is spelt with a Y. So L-Y-F-E-B-U-L-B. Yep. -E -E so our website is lifebulb.com. And on that website, you can connect through our, uh, to our social channels. Uh, but they're all kind of Lifebulb. So yeah. uh, Instagram, Lifebulb, uh, Twitter, um, Facebook, um, uh, as well as LinkedIn. And, and my channels are essentially there too, but it's just Karin yeah. uh, at Lifebulb. And there's, we'll also, we'll link to all of this on the, the episode page, but in addition, there's now some new offshoots with yes. some of your social handles as well, which are all linked on the website. So I'll make sure that everyone can get to those. Karin, it's been such a, an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I'm so glad we were able to do this and um, just really excited to watch the work that you're doing with Lifebulb continue to grow and to be a part of it. Thank you so much. And thank you for all you do. Thank you. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.